Good morning, Chodesh Tov, Hope everyone is celebrating and enjoying and having a very meaningful, uplifting, and joyous Hanukkah celebration. Today we are discussing Parshas Miketz and Hanukkah. It is 2023. The title for today's class is Becoming Jews. This month, the month of Teves is dedicated by Sylvia Levy and family in commemoration of the 10th yard site of her beloved father, Yitzchak ben Moshe. Yitzchak ben Moshe, otherwise known as Isaac Sterental, lived a life full of purpose and unrelenting optimism. Very responsible. He was very firm, honest, and loyal. You could always count on his support, and his word was totally reliable. Isaac's love of family and his quiet acts of kindness are transcendental. His family has been deeply inspired by his example and forever transformed by his abundant blessings. Now, how appropriate is it that we also are celebrating a huge mazel tov to the entire Levi and Suster families on the birth of a son to Aaron and Malka Levi. This is a tremendous simcha. Aaron is a long-standing student of the yeshiva and tremendous friend of his wives, as is the entire Levi family. And it couldn't be more appropriate that on the day that we are commemorating the 10th yard site of now great-grandfather uh, Yitzchak ben Moshe, we are also celebrating the birth of his great-grandson to Aaron and Malka. So a huge mazel tov, and of course, we all join together in a tefillah that the neshama of Yitzchak ben Moshe should have an aliyah and that his family and his descendants should keep being and becoming a tremendous credit to both his memory and bring nachas to all of Pal Yisrael. Additionally, this week's class is dedicated by Alex Lechavamein and family in honor and appreciation of all the learning initiatives in presidential estates. I really should point out that, you know, we've been celebrating and, you know, and appreciating the learning initiative in presidential estates, how that also, that uh, whole concept of the learning of this Aventura group has directly contributed to our learning group. First of all, many of our very major members of this class or the women from presidential estates. Second of all, a lot of the learning that we do in the community started there and spread elsewhere, including this class that we have now been doing for quite a number of years, uh, since around 2013 or so. So back to the Parsha and the topic of Hanukkah. Obviously a question that's on all of our minds is what can we do about the current situation facing Jews worldwide, and as we've discussed, really the threat to humanity as a whole. The whole notion of these three college presidents not being able to stand up against the calling of genocide for Jews as a violation of the code of conduct of these three universities of Harvard, MIT, and Penn State is nothing more than a total devastation, a total shameful statement about quote-unquote higher education in American and secular society. And we are all baffled by 
what humanity has now become. And we are stuck with the problems of the world facing us, whether it's the actual war in Gaza or all of its offshoots dealing with countries like Syria, Iran, China, Russia. I'm sorry, I meant the University of Penn. Thank you for the correction, uh, not Penn State. Thank you. Um, and we're all stuck with these problems. And the question is, what can we do today? And how does Hanukkah inform us of how to act and what to think about the world and hopefully bring a better future? So before we get into the questions of the parasha, let's first do a brief overview of the beginning section of the parasha. It's well known that the parasha begins with the final two years of Yosef's imprisonment, and that Paro is dreaming while standing either on or next to the river, which is identified as the Nile River. And from that river came up seven beautiful cows, and they were grazing in the pasture, and then there were seven other cows that came up after them, and they were not good looking, and they were thin of flesh, and they stood next to the other cows on the bank of the river. Now, the bad-looking cows that were thin ate the seven cows that were healthy, and Pyro awoke. Then Pyro dreams a second time, and there are seven stalks of grain that are weather-beaten. I'm sorry, the first ones that come up are the healthy ones. And then there were seven other ones that sprouted after them that were weather-beaten and thin and very, you know, destroyed or dry type of stocks, stocks, and these stocks consumed the other healthier stocks, and Pyro woke up, and behold, it was a dream. In the morning, Pyro's spirit bothered him, and he sent and asked for all the wizards, Khartoumim, are wizards, otherwise, according to Rashi, translated as necromancers, people who deal with the bones of the dead and predicting things based on conversations with the bones of the dead, and all of the wise people of Egypt, and there was no interpreter of these dreams for Pyro. Then the butler mentions Yosef, not going to go into all the way he describes Yosef, and he says that Yosef predicted the dreams of the butler and the baker accurately in jail, so Pyro sends and calls for Yosef, he gets him out of the pit, Yosef changes his clothing, and he comes to greet Pyro. Pyro conveys to Yosef his dreams, and he says the first dream and the second dream and the swallowing that happened in both dreams. And then Yosef says to Pharaoh, listen, your two dreams are really one dream. That which Hashem is doing, he is telling to you, Paro, the seven good cows and the seven good stocks are seven years. The seven bad cows, thin, evil, whatever, and the seven thin or beaten stocks, they are seven years of famine. And this is what I am saying to Paro, that which Hashem is showing you, Paro is uh, being told, these seven years that are coming are tremendous good years of plenty in all of the land of Egypt. And then there will arise seven years after them, and all of the, the plenty will be forgotten, and Egypt will become destroyed from the land. And this plenty will not be known after, after these years of famine come because it'll be like it never happened. All the abundance is going to disappear and will be as if the seven good years disappeared. And again, the reason that Hashem 
repeated the same message twice is because Hashem is doing it quickly. It's going to happen very fast. And now what Paro should do is he should appoint a very wise, understanding man, a Chacham, and place him over the land of Egypt. And then Paro should appoint other officers and basically prepare the land in the seven years of plenty. And they should gather from all the good that comes in these years of these first seven good years, it should be gathered, kept in cities and guarded. And then this plan will allow for the seven years of famine to come. And it will be that this food that was preserved will provide for those seven years of famine. To which power says, hey, is there anybody as wise as this man, Yosef, a man that the spirit of Hashem is in him? And then Hashem says to Paro, uh, then, sorry, then Paro says to Yosef, after the fact that Hashem has shown you that which he is doing, there's no one that's wiser and smarter than you. You should be in charge of my household. And upon your mouth, by your word, all of my nation will be ruled and supplied. Just the throne, I will be above you. Meaning I'll just have uh, a superior position to you, but everyone else will be under you. Paro removes his ring. And he gives it unto the hand of Yosef. He dresses him in royal clothing. He rides him. He gives him a ride, so to speak, in the second in command. I guess you would call it the Air Force Two in the chariot that is second to the king. And he calls in front of him Avrech, which means he's a young leader or a young father. And he puts him over the whole land of Egypt. And Pyro says to Yosef, I am Pyro, nobody else can lift his hand against you except me. He calls him Tzafnas Paneach. He gives him a wife. Yosef is 30 years old at this time. And at that point, Yosef goes out and he rules over Egypt. And the land does produce in these seven years by the fists full, right? Like hand over fist. And Yosef gathers the food of the seven years and he puts it into cities. And Yosef gathers so much, it's like the sand of the ocean and there's just no number for the amount that Yosef gathers. And at that point, Yosef has two children, Menashe and Ephraim. Then the seven years of plenty finish and begin the seven years of the famine. And the whole of Egypt is starved. The, the nation calls to power for bread. Power says, go to Yosef. Whatever Yosef says to you, you should do. And the famine became severe on the entire land, including on the wealthy people, says Rashi. Yosef then opened the storage houses and he and he provided for Egypt, even though the famine was very strong in the land. And then it says all the land came to Egypt because they came to Yosef for food, because the truth is that the famine had spread over other lands Many other lands, it's very hard to know exactly what the Torah is saying, but the famine spread into many other countries besides Egypt. That's what it seems from the sentences, and that's the overview. So, you know, this is an incredible story in the Torah because, first of all, this is a major famine. It's not a localized famine just to the country of Egypt. It's very clear that many countries are starving. And because of this, Yosef rises like a meteor in like a it's like a meteoric rise into power into becoming the ruler of Egypt and then 
with the very quick turnaround into famine, Egypt clearly becomes fabulously wealthy from first attaining all of its own citizens as servants, all of their assets, then of course all the other people that were coming and buying food. So this is a major, major story in the Torah that affected not just Egypt, not just Joseph, and as we know the rest of the parsha that talks about Yosef encountering his brothers as the ruler of Egypt, but it affects the entire seemingly world, civilized world at the time, certainly in this region, and that's really all that the Torah does describe to us. So obviously this is a major, major happening in the Torah, which leads us to wondering why is all of this happening? And I think most of us presume that the events of Pyro's dreams, along with the ensuing famine, were all orchestrated by Hashem in order that Yosef become king, that Yosef and the brothers, right, the remaining tribes be reunited with some sort of a reconciliation, and that then the Jews will go down to Egypt and the promise that Hashem said to Avram that your children will be enslaved for 400 years is going to come true and a reality based on all of these circumstances. That's what I think is basically the background that we know as facts. And then the assumption of all those facts is that all of this is being done by Hashem in order to facilitate Yosef becoming king, the brothers reuniting, and then eventually the Jews becoming slaves in Egypt. And to that I say, we really need to wake up and ask a few questions. Question number one is, was it really necessary for there to be a worldwide hunger, at least again in this region, in order to facilitate the reunification of Yosef and his brothers and for the Jews' enslavement to happen? In other words, why can't it be that Yosef and the brothers get reconciled without Yosef becoming king? Why can't it be that the Jews end up as slaves in Egypt without Yosef becoming king? Now, I know that this allows for all of that. My question is, you're affecting possibly millions of people, certainly it would seem many hundreds of thousands of people for those circumstances to take place. Is that really our answer? Is our answer to Hashem orchestrating the dreams of the butler and the baker, the dreams of power, the interpretations by Yosef, and all of the famine and the plenty that occurs, all of this is so that Yosef should become king and the Jews should come down to Egypt and become slaves? Couldn't, have ha couldn't all of that happen in a much simpler fashion? Yosef could somehow get reunited with his brothers. And for some reason, the Jews are either taken down to Egypt or moved down to Egypt. Why does Yosef have to become king? I don't know about all of you, but I can't imagine that most of us would like to be king or president of the United States of America for 80 years. I think most of us would probably rather do other things with our lives. And Yosef is literally second command in Egypt for 80, that's eight zero years. That's needed in order for the Jews to become slaves a hundred years later? Really? How, how do we explain that Hashem is orchestrating all of this for that purpose? That's question number one. And I think it's a very important overview question because I think when we really think about it, we begin to think in different directions that allows us to uncover, I think, much more of what the Torah is trying to teach us. Question number two is, does it make sense that Mitzrayim and all of these other countries suffer from a major famine? Let's remember, let's just talk about Egypt for a second. 
It's seven years of famine. Now, it's a big discussion in the commentaries. Did the full seven years of famine happen? Was it two years and eventually later there were five years? Was it only two years? And then Yaakov's merit in coming down somehow removes the need for a famine. But it's clear that these two years of devastation, let's compare it to COVID. In the, sp in the span of two years of famine, Egypt sold all of their properties, including their real estate, right? All of their assets, all of their real estate and themselves and became slaves to power in two years of famine. What did Egypt do to deserve that? Now, again, we're going to say, well, you know, we don't really care what they did. This is just the way for the Jewish people to come down and eventually become slaves in Egypt. Is that really logical? Is that, are we satisfied with that answer? And then what about the other countries? What did they do? And all of that, that's, so that's really question number two is, why do Mitzrayim and several other countries suffer from a major famine? What is their wickedness and why is it not explicitly described in the scripture, which is the second part of this question? Most of us know of the immorality of Egypt. We bump up against it a little bit in the time of Paro, or maybe more than a little bit, if you want to say, in the time of Paro and Sarah. Certainly later in the Torah, we find out, uh, at least according to the commentaries, not so explicit, that they were very lustful, decadent people that um, lived immoral lifestyles, even though it's not so clear in the story of Exodus that that's outlined. But later in the Torah, when the Torah describes the most wicked countries of the world, it mentions Egypt. But it's interesting that the Torah doesn't outline specifically what is their wickedness, what is their immorality, what is their decadence, is it a matter of robbing, is it a matter of idolatry, what is it? The Torah doesn't really tell us very clearly, except in Exodus we find that they have many strange gods, and that is said. But it's not spoken about here in Horatius. Isn't that interesting that the Torah doesn't tell you that Egypt is a very idolatrous nation, or Egypt is a very immoral nation, or in the words of the rabbis, Egypt is a very arrogant nation. But what is it that the Torah does describe about Egypt here in Beratius that allows us to understand that this whole famine is happening and all of the citizens end up becoming slaves to Pyro? Question number three. There's an amazing feature of this parsha that I think is very, very overlooked and it needs a really good explanation. Now, I mentioned several times that the famine did not only affect Egypt, it affected many other countries. But you know what? That fact only becomes clear when the famine happens. It's not seemingly part of Pyro's dream, and it's not part of Yosef's interpretation of Pyro's dream. Why is it that this gargantuan fact that not only Egypt is going to have a famine, but other countries and seemingly many other countries are also going to need food. Does Yosef not need to know that? Does he not need to prepare for that? Is that not a major component that if left out might leave Paro and the other advisors wondering, hey, I wonder how come Yosef knew all of that, but he didn't know that we're gonna get all these other countries also that are going to need to come to us for food. Is it not also a major contributing aspect of all the money that they gathered? So it seems to be a truly huge deal that it's not only Egypt that is affected, but it's all these other countries that are equally affected. Why is that not part of the dreams 
were part of Yosef's interpretation. Obviously, it's not part of the interpretation, it's not part of dreams, but the two go hand in hand. Now, also interestingly, uh, this is question number four, the people are unable to successfully preserve their own food. That becomes clear from the storyline because the people need to go to Yosef in order to obtain food, which Paro seemingly, uh, according to Rashi, at least asks the obvious question. He says, hey, people, why didn't you save food just like Yosef told us that there was going to be a famine when there was years of plenty? Why didn't you preserve your own food? So Rashi's answer is interesting, that it didn't work. When the people preserved their food, it didn't work. And Rashi further comments about Yosef's, about Paro saying, listen, you better go to Yosef. Obviously, he clearly has cursed the food, so go to him. Regardless, it's fascinating that whatever the Egyptians did do to preserve food did not work. Why didn't it work? Why not? And also, it's quite interesting that we never find that the people hate Yosef for what happened to them. A, that the famine happened, which, you know, if you can blame the Jews for things today, uh, you would seemingly be very quick to blame the Jewish interpreter of a famine happening, right? They don't blame him for that. They don't blame him for becoming slaves and sold to Paro. They don't blame him at all. And they don't even notice the fact, seemingly, that their own food preservation doesn't work. According to Rashi, it's much more difficult because Paro says it's Yosef's fault. And still, the people never seemingly hate Yosef. He's the king for the next 70 years, right? So obviously, they're tolerating that. That also is very interesting. So these are our general questions. I'll just repeat them very quickly. Basically five questions. And that is that most of us presume that the events of the butler and the baker's dreams and Pyro's dreams and the interpretation and Yosef's rise to power is all in order to facilitate Yosef becoming king, the, reunifi the reunification with the brothers and the fulfillment of Yosef's original dreams and the eventual exile of the Jews in Egypt and their ultimate enslavement. That's what most of us, I think, presume is the reason that all of this happens. But to that, I really ask, is that really enough to explain what seemingly a very, very large family for many, many countries, for Yosef to be king for 80 years, couldn't have happened a little more simply. Yosef doesn't need to be king. Somehow the brothers and Yosef get together and eventually the Jews end up in Egypt. Isn't that possible? Why does it happen in such a huge way affecting hundreds and thousands, if not millions of people with the famine and with Yosef's rulership of Egypt for 80 years. Number two, why is it that Mitzrayim and these other countries do suffer the famine? What is their specific evil? And very related is why doesn't the Torah tell us about the specific wickedness of Egypt? We don't find about their idolatry here. We don't find about their immorality here. What do we find about Mitzrayim here described in our sentences, and what is the Torah telling us about Egypt and why it gets this famine? <clears throat> Number three is why do Yosef and, and Paro, why does all of this in the dreams not lead to the understanding that the famine is not only going to be in Egypt, but it's also going to be in all these other countries? Obviously, Yosef needs to seemingly prepare for that. How come that's not even mentioned, neither in the dreams and not by Yosef, etc.? And why, number four, were the Egyptians not able to pre successfully preserve the food? Why did that not work? And then number five, why is it that Egypt tolerates Yosef as their leader instead of blaming him and hating him for all their problems and all this outcome of them being sold to power as slaves and everything else negative that does happen? So I'd like to begin our answer by just 
taking a moment, maybe two minutes or less, to describe Sefer Bereshis and its role in the Torah and what Sefer Bereshis is coming to do for us. A major component of Sefer Bereshis is not only the creation of the world and the evolution of mankind, it is a description of all foundational aspects that will determine the functioning of this world until its ultimate completion. So very briefly, here's a list of the completion goals of creation as outlined by our rabbis in the Talmud. The Talmud says that there are seven things created before the world, which is my understanding of the way of saying begin with the end in mind. These are the seven goals of creation, meaning these are the seven things that creation has to include in order for creation as a whole to achieve its goal. The Garden of Eden, repentance, Torah, resurrection, Mashiach, Gehenna, and the Vesa Mikdash. These are the seven things that were, so to speak, the blueprint that bring creation to its ultimate completion. Now, <clears throat> it's fascinating that in Sefer Voracious, we have direct and um, indirect mentions of these topics. We have Torah by Noah and by Avraham and by the forefathers, again, some of them less direct. Torah in its purest sense is not seemingly so explicit in the Torah, although it does mention in several sentences about the forefathers keeping the commandments to whatever that refers, but it's there in Sefer Voracious. Of course, we have the Garden of Eden. We have Gehenna uh, that Hashem speaks about with Cain and other references to it in the Torah. We have Mashiach, which is very clearly referenced according to Chazal. Again, this is a hint. Mashiach has a hint uh, according to Chazal in the opening sentences of Bereshis, and then of course you have in Parshas Baichi uh, several references to the Mashiach. We have the Beis Hamikdash that is also referenced in a few different places. And again, some of these are very explicit, some of them are hints, but they're all there in the book of Bereshis. And the reason that I'm suggesting is because in order for Sefer Bereshis to be complete, the outline of the ultimate fulfillment of the future has to be included in the book of Bereshis. And the reason is very simple. Maral says this very well, that in order for a beginning, which is what the word Bereshis means, in order for a beginning to be a genuine beginning, it necessarily must contain all the components of the ending, of the completion, or else it's not really a beginning. Right? You can only have a beginning if everything that's needed is included so that in the end, it all comes to fruition as per the original design, right? So just like the DNA of the human being can be very, very tiny and found in a cell, but it is all the necessary information for the formation of the human being, so too Beratius is the blueprint genetic code of all creation. And so therefore a major corollary of this whole concept of Sefer Beratius including all the future ingredients and spelled out and described in a way that will provide for the ultimate completion. A major corollary of that is that the Sefer Bereshis contains the roots and hints to the existence and the role of the Jewish people as pertains to themselves, as well as to their role in the global affairs of all mankind. I'm going to repeat that statement because this is the critical component for us. Sefer Bereshis contains the roots of and hints to 
the existence and the role of the Jewish people as pertains to themselves, right? So call that the forefathers and mothers, the 12 tribes, 70 souls that, you know, go down to Egypt, as well as to the role of the Jewish people in the global affairs of all mankind. Because at the end of the day, Hashem cares about the whole world and the Jewish people are central to the entire world. So the main reason, and this is another big, big question that we really always need to understand. The main reason that the Jewish people must become enslaved, I suggest, is not as a punishment for their misdeeds. I do think that many aspects of the enslavement is a punishment for the behaviors of the Jewish people in Egypt and later, but that's not the main reason for their enslavement. Rather, it is to allow the Jewish nation to serve as the fulcrum upon which all humanity and its global society will turn. Hashem orchestrates the entire civilized world at this time and of that era, Egypt being the most advanced and powerful civilization with the greatest potential of that ancient era, to be shown, Hashem wants this entire region, right, all these lands that have famine, Egypt being central among them, Hashem wants them to know and to be shown what happens when a secular world and society becomes its ultimate version, what it produces, what it becomes when given all the money and power it wishes to attain. This is what Hashem is telling us here in Sefer Gracious. When the Egyptian civilization, with all of its wise people, all of its uh, necromancers, gain traction as a world power, right? And then ultimately, gains all the money of the civilized world through the leadership of Yosef, what does it become? And the answer is that it ultimately fails. It becomes an authoritarian regime. It enslaves the Jewish people, claiming its superiority. It completely works on a power structure of intimidation and oppression. They become very fearful of other countries. They don't become a, so to speak, good ambassador to the rest of the world. Egypt is terrified, as Paro outlines at the beginning of Shmos, what's going to happen if another country will come and attack it? And ultimately, that is the best that a secular society with lots of money and lots of smart people, Ivy League educated, that's what it's going to become. Hashem is orchestrating all of that to show the world that secular society utterly fails unless it is under the direct influence and leadership of appropriate Jewish rulership, like Yosef, under his authority. And therefore, the ultimate downfall of Egypt, when Egypt actually begins to cave, is when they decide to not know Yosef, is when they decide to enslave all of the Jews, and Hashem shows the failings of Egypt, which we'll discuss more when we get into the book of Shemos. But the ultimate downfall of the Jews is in not producing more Yosef-type people, right? So therefore, when Yosef disappears, Egypt no longer knows Yosef because the rest of the Jews are not acting like Yosef either. So that becomes the ultimate downfall of the Jews. And they become incapable of properly influencing society around them as to 
the mechanics of how to organize and function as a society in the world. So the ultimate downfall of the Jews is not producing more Yosef personalities. And this destruction happens specifically in Egypt because the brothers do not actually fully reconcile and synergize as the ambassadors of Hashem, as the Torah outlines at the end. It's very unclear what exactly is the kind of um, ultimate get together of Yosef and the brothers. And this in turn leads to a destabilized Jewish nation that becomes largely secularized. We know that the Jewish people in Egypt become largely secularized. They maybe keep three things, according to Chazal, like their names, their language, and their clothing. But what about Torah observance? What about brotherhood among the Jews? What about other morals? What about the fact that they seem to do major idolatry? The Jews become secularized. And so the Torah is here highlighting that the global picture for humanity's true success requires that the Jewish people serve as a second in command, second in command, not first in command, a second in command position to the leaders of the civilized countries of the world, sustaining them, guiding them, and demonstrating to them that their false ideologies, such as necromancy and wizardry, or let's get a little more current, the Big Bang, or transgenderism, and general perverse values of morality, along with selfishness and survival of the fittest mentalities, promotes destruction of a healthy society and a global brotherhood of mankind. We'll, we'll take this in two parts. In Egypt, all of the wise people, actually it's the reverse order, incredibly, in the Torah, when Paro in the morning is bothered by his two dreams, he calls first to the necromancers and then to the wise people. Well, what does that tell you about where they place, you know, trust in, you know, their higher power in Egypt? Well, both of those fail until Yosef comes along. Yosef does his spiel and immediately, oh, Elohim has informed you of all of this. After Elohim has shown you all of this, there's nobody smarter than you. We want your talent. We want your insight. We want your foresight. We want your planning. We want your strategy. And we want you to be in charge. But you know what? We'll retain a veto power, says Paro. I'll retain the veto power. But as soon as Yosef presents the wisdom that he has and the insight that he has and the fact that this is what Hashem, and he very clearly states, this is what Hashem, Elohim, is showing you, Paro is bought in. And the people are bought in. And Yosef immediately becomes the leader. So the people of Egypt and the world suffer tremendous famine at this time. Because at this time, the values of Egyptian society are that, the, are that they are only able to see one another favorably when everyone has every physical need and pleasure satisfied. Now we know this, as my father always points out brilliantly from Rashi, at the beginning of the parsha, where Rashi says that the years of plenty, as typified by the cows, this is a way to properly learn Rashi, hopefully we'll provide it in the transcript, is when society looks favorably at one another. Meaning when we're able to look at each other and not fight with each other, not be jealous, not try to take away what other people have, then those are the years of plenty. But the sad truth is that even that was based on the fact that everybody had enough. But the minute that there wasn't enough, then Egypt is lost. 
and they don't know what to do with themselves. And they're just going to submit to whatever uh, authority comes over them that provide for them food because really they don't have it in them to look and have a different perspective of what's important in life and what they should be looking for in life. No, they need what they need. They have to get it. And if not, they, they are they completely abdicate control over themselves. And in fact, we see that Pharaoh himself also abdicates responsibility for Egypt because as soon as Yosef comes along, he puts all the responsibility on his shoulders. He makes him the manager, makes him the one responsible for the day-to-day -day running of Egypt. He doesn't want to know from it because Egypt doesn't want the responsibility for its own governance and sustenance. It just wants what it wants. And that's really a very, very unhealthy society. In America, if we look at the several hundred years before the 1960s, it was basically an incredible country with excellent morals. Yes, there are many, many problems. And I am just doing a, a broad, you know, kind of brush over, you know, all the problems of America that existed in the time uh, that since its inception in the late 1700s. But the fact is that for a hundred and, you know, 70 years or so plus, America was a fabulous country that provided so much good to its own citizens, to the immigrants that came into this country, and to so much of the rest of the world. But if you look around at other countries in the world in that same time period, which other countries were truly beacons of light and support and sustenance to the rest of civilized living across the globe? Not too many. And so the fact that America had all the success cannot be understood well, in my opinion, without understanding the fact of its uh, constitution and declaration of independence really being based on so much of Jewish values and Torah and Hashem. But the minute, and by that I mean the decades, that it became popular to knock God in the schools and God in other places in American government, we quickly saw how the society of this country has declined to incredibly abysmal lows. We've been experiencing that since the 1960s forward, and the most recent of which we are all witness to and cannot believe our eyes. But that's what the Torah is telling us about understanding Egypt and its society and what it needs. For basically 80 years, under the leadership of Yosef, Egypt has fantastic success and wealth. We do not find an implosion of their society. I don't say that they were becoming moral people and being, you know, model citizens of the earth, but apparently there was enough balance there, <clears throat> whether you go with the Midrash that Yosef circumcised the males of Egypt, or you just look at the sentences and what we seem to find is that Egypt is a flourishing country, that the Jews are essentially being treated well, and it seems to be that everything is good in Egypt land. And the fact is that the Torah then tells us that when Yosef is gone, everything falls apart. The Jews fall apart, Egypt falls apart, and that's the ultimate message here. That in order for the global humanity and society to be successful, we need appropriate Jewish leadership. Ultimately, we need Yosef-type leadership. Yosef has absolute integrity. And the fact that he is good with being second in command is completely contrary to any other person that rules any other country. They need to be the man, the one in charge, the one that takes everything that they can for themselves. 
Yosef doesn't need any of it. As the Torah testifies, every cent that Yosef gathers is for the government. None of it is for him. He makes no money on the side. How many presidential families is everybody thinking about now? Right? About the money that they earned on the side. Right? That's not Yosef. It's the opposite. And that can help a society to function properly with enough integrity and morality that it can do well. But without that, it falls apart. And from the outset of Yosef's kingship, I think one of the things that the Torah highlights here is that he had children before the famine, because as the rabbis say, during the famine, people should not have relations because it's a time of trouble for the world. How many world leaders you know, have that kind of perspective? Let's give the opposite perspective. Let them eat cake. Uh, why are they starving? They can have cake, right? So typically the, the, roy the ro royal families they have everything they need. They can't even understand what the rest of society is experiencing. When it comes to Yosef and his leadership, he's a king for several years. But as soon as there's a famine in the general land, it affects his personal life. That's what leadership is. That's the type of leadership that Jews need to represent. And so if we just focus on this concept and we see the role that the Jews have in the world to demonstrate to the rest of the world what leadership is, what governance is, what morality is, what integrity is, and that without that, the world falls apart, I think we understand everything that we need to understand about what's happening in our world today. How can the state of Israel, the nation of Israel, become Yosef today? That becomes the essential question. So, you know, I think that one of the very big themes that everybody has highlighted since October 7th is the disunity of the Jewish people. And now somehow, thank God, we see a much greater respect and even appreciation, as was pointed out to me today, even appreciation of our fellow Jews, whether it be the secular for the religious or the religious for the secular. And that's tremendous. But I think that there's a, a missing piece here. And that is that it's not just that the Jewish people were disunified. It's that the Jewish people proved that they could not govern themselves. How are the Jewish people going to be a role model of governance or assist other governments in the world in their morality and in their integrity if they cannot govern themselves? So number one, the state of Israel, the nation of Israel, and from this point forward, please just interchange state and nation, whichever one I say, I mean both. We need to solve our internal governance issues. We must do that. We need to build something now that will endure so that our nation in the state of Israel can function like a normal government. We don't want to have to be kicking people out of Congress or the House because of their immorality and their decadence. We don't want to have to have these major divides and never agree on how to deal with the debt. So we just keep raising the debt ceiling. We have to do the job that Jews need to do for themselves before they can do it for the rest of the world. And let me be very clear about something. The reason that the Jews need to be second in command is because we're always second in command, because the one king is Hashem. Even the Mashiach is second in command. He is the Mashiach, the king, which is the servant of Hashem. David is the king 
but he is the servant, the ultimate servant of Hashem. The Jews always need to be the second in command to Hashem. So we need to be the second in command for other people of the world. We need to be selfless and we need to be demonstrating our own governance, helping them in their governance and recognizing that Hashem is the ultimate king. Number two, the religious must learn how to properly continue to love and to contribute to the secular parts of Israeli society. That has to happen. Now, sure, we all want the secular Jews to become more aware of the Torah and Hashem. But right now, the responsibility for that happening is on us. We have to do it. Let me point out to you, as very much relates to Hanukkah, in the Al-Hanisim, which is very interesting that it's different for Hanukkah than for Purim, because by both, by Hanukkah, it says that Hashem stood up for the Hashmonaim and for their contingent. It doesn't say that Hashem stood up. It says Hashem stood up for the Hashmonaim. Hashem will stand up for us, but we need to stand up so Hashem can stand up for us. Hashem will help us, Hashmonaim, hopefully, right? If we are doing our part to stand up, and part of that includes bringing everyone closer to the Torah and aware of Hashem. But in order to do that, we need to properly continue to love and contribute to those parts of Israeli society. Number three, the state of Israel needs to call on all Jews worldwide to denounce the false ideologies of secularism and promote the Jews' relationship with Hashem. There's no question that the state of Israel should be renouncing the quote-unquote leadership of those three Ivy League schools. But in order to do that, the state of Israel has to call on all Jews, all Jews, all Jews who care about what happens in Israel need to get behind the fact that the ideologies of the secular world are false and garbage. Whether you want to have your own, uh, you know, building of more Jewish colleges with more proper Jewish Torah education, that's great. But at very least, the state of Israel should say, hey, the nation of Israel stands against these false garbage ideologies. We are against those things. That's what the Hashmonaim did. That's what we have to do. And I think the state of Israel really needs to treat carefully American politics by supporting true American Judeo values and to advocate for the best U.S. presidential candidate that advocates for those values. As a country, as a state, we need to do that. We need to stand up and not be afraid of the repercussions, just like, number five, we cannot, Israel cannot kowtow to pressure that does not allow them to control Gaza. It's insane, right? You can't do that. Well, you can't stand up against false ideologies. If you can't do that, then you are caving and you are compromising and you are kowtowing. It's not only about what happens in Gaza. It's about all the false ideologies that lead to Hamas and lead to Gaza. The country, state, nation of Israel needs to stand up for all of that. And of course, if we can do all of that, then hopefully Israel can devise a long-term strategy for Gaza, Iran, and Syria, and a long-term game plan. The good news, though, is if we do all that, God is sure to stand up for us, like he did in the Hashemunayim time, help us to be successful, the few against the many, the true ideologies against the false ideologies, and truly have the light of Hashem spreading to the world as represented by Hanukkah and its miracles. So in a nutshell, the reason that the Torah makes such a big deal about Yosef 
and the country and why he's a king for 80 years is because we need to learn that that's the kind of Jewish leadership that is necessary for the world. That is why it's contained in Sefer Boratius. And by the way, I think the reason that the Torah does not make a big deal in the dreams or in interpretations about what's going to happen for the rest, what's going to happen to the rest of the world is because Hashem does not want what Egypt now does with Yosef to be with the rest of the world in mind. Hashem is going to leave that, leave that part of the puzzle up to Yosef. And obviously Yosef did gather enough food for all those other countries as well. And that is what's going to happen when Jewish leadership behaves the way that it needs to behave. It will attain through divine intervention the proper positions of authority that it needs to attain. And then it will be given the divine guidance that it needs in order to provide for whatever will come up in the world. And I think that's part of the message that it's not that Yosef knows about it in advance, that that's why he prepares for it. It's that in his governance, he is assisted by Hashem to do whatever will become necessary, even if the famine is much more widespread than originally thought, it will naturally happen that Yosef will provide for that. And all of this is why the Jews need to become enslaved to begin with, because we need to represent that nobody should become enslaved, nobody should be under anyone else's authority except that of Hashem. And we need to learn that if we fail in our mission to be the proper leaders of the world and assist them in their governance, then we are in big trouble and that the only solution is the reunification of the Jewish people, alignment with Hashem, and trying to lead ourselves and others with selflessness rather than selfishness. Let's take some questions or comments. We only have a few minutes. I'm sorry I went a little uh, long today. We started a few minutes late. My father will, yes, be giving sure at 1030. Anybody with a question or comment? Yes, Mrs. Mrs. Levy. Uh, unmute, please. Unmute yourself. Hi. Hi. Sorry, I forget. Um, it's it's been a very exciting year in the sense that you were building it up and building up, building up the case, and um, and somewhat devastating. The messages. It's, it can be optimistic, like my dad would would be look at it optimistic. And on the other side, I mean, maybe I don't have, I don't share the same optimism, and I, it it makes me a little more insecure and and afraid about what's happening in our reality in this day and age. I wanted to ask you when you say that Joseph told Paro, for example, and I've been thinking about this for a while, he tells him Hashem you know, is helping me interpret the dream it's it's all because of Hashem what do the Egyptians know about Hashem, like they relate to that okay, great question um, first let me just respond optimism is the only choice because the other choice is paralysis and um, running away and hiding, and that's obviously not going to happen. But um, yeah, reality check can be both devastating and depressing, but hopefully it's the beginning of <clears throat> you know, doing something towards solution. I, I agree with you. I know, I know that it's hard, but I'm, I'm just responding that. 
your question about uh, Egyptians and Hashem, which is an excellent question, you know, I just came across um, a book that was recently written called Privilege is Having Two Parents. That's the real privilege, which is true. It is. And that's something that most American homes are missing. Shockingly, most American homes do not have two parents. Now, what does that have to do with your question? Well, the answer is that the entire world knows that the Torah speaks of marriage, a mother and a father producing children. And in fact, that's the first thing that Hashem told man and woman. So every single time that we have an opportunity to show the world that, you know, we Jews are not that smart, but the Torah is really smart. And that's what Yosef does. So they understand from Yosef, and, you know, they have history with Abraham too. They understand that there's another way of looking at the world. You know, this is not news in the world. They knew about the flood. They knew about many things. But of course, they're trying to run away from it because in their minds, they can't control that. But necromancing and wizardry, et cetera, that's more in their control, which is what idolatry is really all about. And so the reason that the Torah is not so explicit about the, and I meant to say this before, about the wickedness of the behaviors of the Egyptian people, whether it be idolatry or immorality, is because what really leads to all that is the false ideologies of wizardry and necromancy. That's what leads to all those things. But they know that there's another way to look at the world. And when they bump up against it and need it, yeah, they, they can easily see it. Besuel and Lovin do the same thing. Oh, it's from Hashem that, that Rivka must be destined to go. All wicked people of the world know, and non-wicked people, uh, quote unquote, the neutral people of the world, they know about God. They're just trying to push it to the back burner. So when we have an opportunity to show them, hey, the reason that this Jewish stuff works is not because Jews are smart. It's because God is really smart. They'll get it. I mean, society is falling apart in this country in large part because of one parent families. If you can call that family. You're back on mute. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, it's just the construction next door and there's a lot of noise. Oh, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the two-parent family brings us to marriage that is spoken about in the Torah as a basis of society. And, and that's wisdom of Hashem that, okay. All right. And there are tons of examples like that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else for today? Oh, Mami, please. Hi. Me? Yes, Mami, sorry. Okay, so did you see that Switzerland pulled pulled away their financing to UNRWA today, to the UN um, that governs the Palestinians, that gives money to the Palestinians? They pulled it out because they said that Hamas is a terrorist organization. Oh, wow. Okay, that's good news. Mazel that's tov. good news. Okay, Another I thought I'd cheer you up. I didn't think you saw it because it just came out. I did not see it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Are okay. we all good for today, everyone? Thank okay. you, Rabbi. Bye. Thank you Have a great day, everyone. Please Thank zoom you. over to my cluster. Thank you Thank very you. much.